We can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. And today we're looking at the coming judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And uh, we're going to be looking at this passage together, the final judgment of all the nations. Um, and we've looked so far at the two parables in Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins and also the parable of the talents. And each one of those made it clear that we need to be ready. Uh, and obviously this is taking place in the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus is discussing his return. He's preaching a sermon on it, two chapters long, uh, one of the longest discourses that he's given us so far. And uh, this morning, we want to look at this text, and we're going to get probably about halfway through it, and then we'll finish it up next week. But follow along as I read the text for us out of Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will, sep- be, and he will separate people from one another as, shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did it, did not do it unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This morning, I just want to spend a little time in way of introduction here. The Bible makes very clear that all known sin... Well, all, that all sin is known to God. You may think you're getting away with sin, you're not. And all sin must be punished. Uh, some verses there in your outline, Numbers thirty-two twenty-three says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Even though it's hidden from maybe the public eye, maybe only you and God know about that sin, Trust me, it will find you out. 
And the writer of Proverbs 13.21 says, Adversity pursues sinners. Psalm 90, verse 8 says, Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy presence. In other words, what might appear to us as something that's hidden, something that is secret, is actually in full, clear view of God. No sin escapes God's notice. And no sin escapes God's judgment. The consequence of sin is like a shadow that can't be shaken. When the sun's out and you're walking around, you see your shadow. You can't run away from your shadow. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 11, it says that the wicked deserves... And it will be done to him. See, judgment for sin is inevitable, beloved. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen. Paul sums it up in the book of Romans in the New Testament. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It doesn't say some, it says all. Later in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. See, sin is something that looks fun for a brief time. It satisfies the flesh for a brief time. But I don't want you to be mistaken. No sin, no sinner is exempted from God's judgment and God's punishment. That's just simply what the Bible says. And let me say this, not even the sin's of Christians are exempt. You may be a a Christian here this morning thinking you're getting away with sin. You're not. You say, what do you mean they're not exempt? Someone had to pay the price for my sin. See, the marvelous and incredible, gracious privilege that was granted to us through Christ is to have that judgment and that punishment for our sin placed upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for us. That's what we remember here today when we come to this communion table. By God's divine grace working through the obedient trust in his Son, Believers have the the guilt, and not only the guilt, but the punishment and the penalty for their sins nailed to the cross. And Christ alone made that atonement sufficient, even for the sins of the whole world, for all those who would ever put their faith, their trust in him. But those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, beloved, as Lord and Savior, They have to bear that penalty. They have to bear that burden. They have to pay the price for their own sin. The Bible says that's spiritual death. It's eternal damnation. This isn't a joke. It's not make-believe. This is a very real thing that we're talking about here this morning. Judgment. And the warning to unbelievers is stated over and over and over and over again throughout Scriptures. By the words the prophets of the word of the Lord. It's demonstrated even by divine acts of judgment. You see in the Old Testament certain situations. During the time of Noah, iniquity had become so widespread and vile that God destroyed all mankind except eight righteous souls. Can you imagine the earth being so vile that only eight survived? 
Or think of Sodom and Gomorrah. It became so wicked that God destroyed those cities at once with fire and brimstone. Genesis 19. See, throughout history, God has chosen sovereignly, you might say, to judge certain nations. To judge individuals. And those judgments should stand as certain signposts to us that, you know what, we're not going to get away with anything. You can't sin without a cost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to read this for us. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 10, chapter 10, verse 6. <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 6. Follow along, it says, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might, what, not desire evil as they did. And it lists the things up above there. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, what? Take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's judgment is repeated as themes both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a little chart there in your your outline. In the Old Testament, the judgment of God was almost looked at as temporary. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah, the the whole flood thing, other individuals who were judged when they did something wrong in God's sight. Whereas in the New Testament, when judgment is spoken of, it's spoken of of something that's permanent, something that's eternal. The Old Testament focuses primarily on this world, what we know. The New Testament, when it speaks of judgment, talks about the next world and the kingdom and the judgment that will come. When you look throughout the Old Testament, you see God physically destroying nations and punishing cities and individuals and all that stuff because of their wickedness. In the New Testament, on the other hand, rather than individuals, it speaks of a judgment that lasts throughout all eternity. For everybody. Do you know that no one spoke of judgment in Scripture more than Jesus Christ? Stop and think about this with me. He spoke of sin that could not be forgiven. We've studied that. He spoke of the danger of losing one's soul forever. He spoke of spending eternity in the torments of hell. Of 
existing forever in outer darkness. Where the Bible says there will be perpetual weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place so horrible you can't even imagine it. No pictures of judgment are more intense and sobering than those that Jesus portrayed for us here in Scripture. And yet, some people point at judgment of God and say, well, your God's an angry God. I don't believe in an angry God. No, I think God's judgment is totally consistent with his love. Think about Jesus for a moment when he wept at the punishment that was going to be coming on Jerusalem, on the people there. He warned them. His warnings of judgment and punishment were really acts of love. When he spoke of judgment, it was uh, kind of a warning sign. He was saying, hey, wake up. It was divine appeals for men to turn from their sin in order to escape the condemnation that would otherwise be inevitable. Because judgment is inevitable. I mean, when you say you love your spouse or you love your family member, you love your children, one of the, the main concepts that we understand that love to be it works itself out it fleshes itself out in protection of those people if you love your children you don't let them run out in the middle of the freeway you don't want them to get hurt if you love your spouse you don't want want them to to do something that would bring harm to them you you protect them and so jesus spoke therefore of judgment and he spoke about it a lot not because he was angry but because of his infinite love and grace he wanted to make sure that everyone understood what 2 Peter 3.9 says. That it's not his wish nor the Father's wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, if you see impending judgment coming and you don't tell somebody about it, I don't think that's very loving. And so Jesus' words here on the Olivet Discourse about judgment. Remember, this is a a time where he is giving a sermon on his second coming. And it's given privately to his disciples. After the public teaching that he did in the temple and all that, we've been all through that. And it's pictured not as a parable. This isn't necessarily a parable. Some people say, oh, it's a parable of the sheep and the goats. Well, it's not a parable. It's a warning. It's pictured as a divine separation of the righteous sheep from the unrighteous goats. That judgment will occur just before Christ establishes his millennial kingdom on earth. That's when it's going to happen. And it will determine the ultimate eternal destiny of everyone living at the end of the tribulation. But will also determine who will and who will not enter the kingdom. Remember, we have a seven-year tribulation at the end of which Christ returns from heaven with his saints. That's when we will receive our glorified bodies. Someone at my brother's funeral said, well, now Tom has a body and he's in complete whole. Well, no, he's not. His body's laying right there in the casket. If you don't believe me, let's open it up and look. It's still there. His physical body's still in that grave, and it will be 
until the return of Christ, when that body is raised to newness of life and it's rejoined with his soul. Where does a person go when they die if they're a Christian? They go directly into God's presence without a body. That shouldn't be hard to understand. God is spirit. Our soul is a spirit. We can, we can relate. And when Christ returns to earth, that is when those bodies will be raised and joined to the people who, the souls that have gone to heaven, they'll come back and they'll be rejoined. And they'll have their uh, glorified bodies. Now, those of us who are living here on earth, remember when, when Christ comes back for the rapture, is what I'm, what I'm talking about here, Just don't get it confused with the second coming of the rapture, when he comes back for his church, we will be instantaneously caught up to be with him. Our bodies will not die. They will be glorified instantly. And we'll be up in heaven that's before the tribulation starts, some period along there. And we'll be up in heaven and we will be uh, just, you know, worshiping and doing what you do in heaven. We've talked about that. But it's very important to understand that this thing will actually happen. This is, this is a very real situation. At some point in time, when Christ returns, there will be a judgment, and this judgment is final. There's no, oh, wait, can I make a decision? No. It's kind of like on the Internet. After you hit that, you know, commit, I want to buy this ticket. They give you several times. You see the right check, yes, right schedule, yes, and you hit commit, and you buy that ticket. You can't go to the airline and say, you know what, I'm sorry, hit the... No. 150 bucks. You want to change your ticket? It's 150 bucks. Well, this judgment is, is final. It will be the total separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. And so we want to look a little bit about what this judgment will be. Let's look at the setting of the judgment. We'll just look at that for today. The setting of the judgment. It says there in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes. Okay? The Son of Man. Who is the judge? Who's the Son of Man? Christ, right? Jesus Christ. And it's basically telling us very clearly that he is this judge who will be the judge, the final judge of all souls. The sovereign judge over the separation of the sheep and the goats will be Christ himself, the Son of Man. Remember, he declared earlier that even, not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment, the Bible says, to the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, says that in John 5.22, even as they honor the Father. So it's, it's the judge of Jesus Christ who will be standing before one day. God the Father has delegated all judgment authority to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, that's the most common title for Jesus that he used about himself was the Son of Man. That title really... What did it do? It affirmed his incarnation. It, it affirmed his deity. It affirmed his identity with mankind. 
his time of humiliation, his time of sacrifice. That's why we're having communion today, because he told us to do this until he comes back. Don't ever forget what Christ paid for on the cross. It reflected on his condensation from heaven, his submissiveness to the Father, his humility, his meekness, and ideally his gracious love for all of mankind. Think if you were God, I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to come down to this sin-stained earth and live for 30-some years only knowing that they're going to kill you in the end. That wouldn't be my idea of a good time. But that's exactly what he did. And also, the, the title, the Son of Man, it tends to be less offensive, you might say, to people. I mean, he regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. And I think that, uh, you know, when he, when he did that, it was, it was, you know, he wasn't calling himself the king all the time. That would have... He wasn't calling himself uh, the son of uh, God all the time. That would have been totally offensive to people. He did that ultimately. But I think that there's reasons why he didn't do that. He didn't want to push the envelope. He was waiting for God's timing for everything to come down on him. So when he referred himself to the son of man, it was very common And yet, he still referred to himself as a heavenly king when he had to. So until this point in Jesus' ministry, I want you to understand this morning that Jesus had never directly referred to himself as king. He had told a parable about a king who represented God and the Father, and we understand what he's saying. But until now... He's talking privately now with the 12 disciples. He finally speaks of himself as king. Even when Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? What did he reply? He replied simply, it is as you say. So for a long while, the Jewish people and certainly the religious leaders of Jesus' day knew that Jesus claimed to be some kind of a king, they were trying to figure out what it was. And because he claimed to be the Messiah, that was the issue. That was the problem. And it was because they hoped that the Messiah would come and conquer Rome and take over. Remember, that's what they were wanting. When are you coming back to you? When are you going to free us from the burden of Rome? They were looking for a conquering king. But here in the privacy with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, He declared that he, the Son of Man, would one day take his rightful place as the great king and judge. So he kind of sets this situation up. Make no mistake, the Bible says every tongue will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, we live in a day of grace. We live in the age of the church where, you know what, you can come here and you can listen to that message and you can walk out those doors. And you can come back next week and you can hear the whole message over again. And you can walk out those doors again. And one day, maybe God will work in your heart. And you will come to terms with who Jesus Christ is. And you'll bow your knee. You'll bow your 
you'll confess that he is the Lord and he'll save you. This is a different time we're talking about here. This is a time where there is no more grace period. This is a time when that's it. Either you're for Jesus or you're against Jesus. There's no switch in your mind. There's no thinking about it. And the Bible says that one day we will all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's only right because he is. You know, don't ever forget, we, when we come to Christ and we bow before him and we acknowledge him as Lord, we're not making him Lord. He is already Lord. You're simply stating a simple fact. You're just agreeing with his, his position of lordship over you. And when you deny that, when you restrict yourself from that, and you say, no, I'm going to run my own life, what are you doing? You're saying, no, I'm going to make me Lord. I want to be in control. And it boils down to just that, a control issue, if we're honest. We all like to be in control of something. Some of us more than others. But we all like to be in control. I've never met somebody that said, man, I just love it when everything just gets out of control and I have no control over anything. I've never met someone like that. Maybe they exist, but I've never met them. You see, one day, whether you like it or not, Jesus Christ will reign his control over you. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather have that coming time with Jesus as my Savior rather than my judge. He will be the judge. Well, when does this take place? When does this take place? There'll be no grace after this. Verse 46 makes it very clear. It says these will go away into eternal punishment. So it's something that is final. It's not the Lord's coming in wrath to, to render judgment that it's amazing here, but it's that he first came to offer salvation. See, I mean, we all, if you just be honest about it, we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. That's what we deserve. The wonder is not that Jesus will someday come in glory to judge the world, but what amazes me is that he came first in humility to save sinners. To hang on a cross for you and me. The marvel is not that God promises to condemn sinners for their sin, but that he first offers them deliverance from it through Christ. In coming to save those who trust in him, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated, the Bible says, his love for the unlovely. And he did that by bearing the penalty of their sin. By dying on a cross called Calvary, the death that we deserve. And what is even more remarkable than that, that he came to redeem sinners who are worthy only of his judgment. We don't deserve his grace. See, don't, 
I think sometimes we become Christians and then we start feeling pretty good about ourselves and we see God working in our lives and pretty soon we're, we, we start looking down our noses at everybody else who's not in Christ. Don't ever forget where, from where you came. We're not called to go out and condemn everybody for their lifestyle or, or for the way they live or for the language they, they, they use or for the stuff they put in their body. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to warn them, to give them the opportunity to come to Christ for their sins to be forgiven. Because we're right there with them, beloved. We're all sinners saved by God's grace. And we don't deserve that salvation. Well, look at the time. Jesus is the judge, clearly. The time. It says that the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him there in verse 31. The time of judgment will be Christ's return when he comes in his glory. And we've talked about that in previous messages. We don't know the precise time in history, but Jesus did a pretty good job here giving a certain signpost to look at when you see this happen, when you see that happen, and we've been through all that. We know that he will appear immediately after the tribulation. The church, remember, is taken out before the seven-year tribulation, then all hell breaks loose on earth. The end of that seven-year tribulation comes this time of judgment. Matthew 24, 29 says, immediately after the tribulation, he will return. Apparently, this judgment will be instantaneous. At the moment he appears. And when that occurs, the opportunity for faith in him will be passed. There will be no going back. Remember the other parables that we looked at, the parable of the virgins. When the bridegroom comes, the door will be what? Shut. It's over. When the Lord comes to earth in glory with his angels and his saints, there will be no more opportunity for unbelievers than living to receive him as Messiah. The full tribulation will last seven years. The second half of it we know is the great tribulation, three and a half years. 1,260 days, Daniel tells us. Remember, we, I'm not going to go over all this, but we, we came to understand that there's some additional days there, a total of 75 days that Daniel talks about. We don't know what happens during that time period at the end of the tribulation. We don't know. We just know that when Jesus comes back, this judgment will be instantaneous. And it says that he'll be accompanied by his angels, a host of heavenly angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he appears immediately after the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24 says, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, 
and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. The Lord will not only come with his angels, but with his saints. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, this is what Paul is reassuring the Colossian believers there, at Colossae, he says, Then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The Old Testament saints, the saints of the church who have died, the saints who have been raptured, the saints who have been martyred during the tribulation, all those will accompany Christ and join the saints still living here on earth. When he descends to earth to establish his millennial kingdom. Remember, people will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. You've got to remember that. So that's the time period of this judgment. Look at the place. It says, it says clearly in verse 31, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will what? Sit on his glorious throne. Who sits on a throne? A king. The place of Christ's judgment will be the earth. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the folks who, who, you know, they'll take the Bible literally for every other prophecy in the Old Testament. When it says, oh, Jesus is going to ride in Jerusalem on a donkey, it said that. Well, he did that. He's going to be born of a virgin. Yeah, he did that. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. Yeah, he did all those things. Well, he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign on earth For a thousand years, a time we know as a millennium, well, we don't believe that. We believe that's something else. We're all millennialists. We we believe there is no earthly kingdom. I don't know how they I don't know how they derive that. I just don't. Because every other prophecy they're willing to take literally, but when it comes to the millennium and, and Christ's rule and reign on earth. I mean, how can you not understand what he's saying here? Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. See, Christ will reign over the restored earth for a thousand years. And then he will continue to reign over a newly created heaven and earth because the old is going to be destroyed throughout all eternity. That's what the Bible teaches. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 33, while Mary was still betrothed to Joseph, the angel told her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's what it says. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Where's David's throne? David's throne's in Jerusalem. It's here on earth. That is therefore where Christ's throne will be. When Jesus returns, his feet, it says, will stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, 4. 
which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, it says, will be split right down the middle, from the east to the west. And it's going to create a huge valley there when he does that. So half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half will move toward the south, and there will be a big valley there running east and west. And from the the passage, it becomes obvious that Jerusalem is in existence during this time. Somehow it's going to be transformed to be made suitable at the place of Christ's divine glorious, as the place of Christ's divine glorious throne. See, when Jesus returns, the nations will be aroused, Joel chapter 3 says, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And he's going to declare... Put in the sickle, and we've read this before, for the harvest is ripe, come tread the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. See, but you have to understand, the decisions that day will not be made by men, but they will be made by God. Because the time for deciding to receive Christ will be past. The decisions people already will have made regarding him will determine his decision regarding them. Those for whom he is Lord and Savior will enter the kingdom. Those whom he rejected, whom they rejected, who rejected him will be forever executed, executed. excluded and executed from the kingdom. And so you see this time that is coming when Christ returns. At the ascension, the angel made clear that Jesus will return. And it would be bodily. It would be historical. It's not going to be figurative. It's not going to be merely spiritual. That's not what the Bible says. He told the astonished disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, listen to this. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. See, when he returns to earth, he will reign personally on a literal throne, in a literal Jerusalem, over a literal people, for a thousand years. That's what's going to happen. Well, who are going to be his subjects? Who are the people that he is going to be ruling over? It says there in verse 32 that before him will be gathered all the nations. Ethnos, nations. The basic meaning of people refers to every person alive on earth when Christ returns. Even though he's taken all the believers into heaven at the rapture, remember, during the the following seven years of the tribulation, many other people will come to believe in him. And during that horrible time, the dreadful time on earth, multitudes of, of Gentiles as well as surviving Jews will be brought to faith in Christ. And what Jesus makes clear here in this passage is those who are alive on earth when he returns will include both saved and unsaved people. And that's where we get the representation of the sheep and the goats. Those two separate peoples will have two separate destinies. The believers, the Bible says, will be ushered into the kingdom. The unbelievers will be ushered into eternal punishment, a place called hell. I 
My nephew spoke at my brother's funeral. And he used the illustration of when his dad got sick and things started to go bad. He began to kind of look at God and say, hmm, why is this happening? This is a good man. Cares for his family, hardworking, never asked anybody for anything. Honest man. And he used the illustration of, is the glass half full or half empty? And he went on and he started talking about the blessings that he's received from his father and from knowing him and being raised by him. And and he concluded in the end, you know what? The glass is half full, not half empty. See, when we put our faith, our trust in Christ, just as death crystallizes eternity for all unbelievers when they die, so will the second coming of Christ crystallize eternity for unbelievers who are alive then. When you die, you don't know when that's going to happen. You just don't. And the Bible says that we should make haste in making ready for that day when it comes. We just don't know. I was joking with one of my other brothers. I said, well, now you're the oldest in the family as far as the brothers go. I said, you know what that means? <laughs> and Because Tom was the oldest at the point where the other ones have already passed away. But I'll never forget at my brother uh, Jimmy's funeral, my brother Tommy was telling me, man, the, the funeral director said, hey, Tom, you know, you're the... The, patri- the, uh, the, the, the patriarch now of the family. You're the oldest brother alive. And so we were there in the, the funeral home for my other brother's funeral, and I was talking to Tom, and he said, boy, that made me think about a lot of things. You never know. I don't know if I want that mantle. I told the people that I said, yeah, there's blessings of being the youngest in a family, a bigger family. There's also some things that are not so nice. You get to watch them all die unless God takes you. See, but death is is a permanent thing. You can't come back from death. Just as this judgment is, it will be a permanent thing during this this beginning of his kingdom. There's no indication in Scripture that those saints will experience any sort of transformation when 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 Christ comes back. So you're going to have this mingling of people who are glorified saints, the ones that come back, and the people who are just believers. And that's not too hard to understand because Christ did that when he had his glorified body. He, he intermingled with the disciples. So during that time, that's what's going to happen. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But don't buy into the thought that this millennium is simply a spiritual thing. It's not really going to happen the way the Bible says. The subjects here are all the nations and they'll be gathered before him and they'll be gathered before him for judgment. At the end, even of this a thousand year reign, there will be unbelievers who rear up 
and rebel against Christ and his lordship. I mean, you can't even believe it. You know, some people say, well, I thought the millennium was supposed to be this great time. Jesus is ruling and we're reigning with him. Well, yeah, but you still have unbelievers if you believe this. I mean, it's just amazing to me that you still have people who would deny Christ who he is. But then again, it's not really that amazing when you look back and you look at people like Judas and other people who had time with Christ while he was here on earth and saw all the miracles that everybody else saw. But you know what? Our, our sinfulness is so deep. Our wickedness is so, so bad that we could be face to face with a loving, forgiving Savior and deny who he is. I want to just pray this morning that if you're here and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, don't wait. Don't wait. I totally get the idea that, you know, it looks kind of like, well, you know, I don't really need that. Trust me, we all need it. We all need a Savior because we're all, the Bible says, we all fall short, we all sin in a myriad of ways every day. And without that saving grace of God in our life through the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be on a fast journey to a place called hell. A place that is very real, just as real as heaven. It's eternal, just like heaven is. But it's described eternal punishment. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, burning of the flesh without it really burning up. I mean, that alone kind of gives me, you know, the idea that you would be burned and feel the burning, but it would never, never cease. That pain would never stop. Horrible place. And Christ has given you a way out. The Bible says Christ has come. He's lived perfect life. He died He was raised from the the grave. And now he's calling you to put your faith, your trust in him for salvation. Call out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, it's, it's clear. We've all sinned. I need forgiveness. You can either try to work on that forgiveness your own, or you can come to a God who loves you very much and is willing to just pour his forgiveness out over you and cover your sin and pay for your sin. It's not cheap. It's not free. It costs Christ his life. It costs God his son. But it's because of his love that he desires that for you. Pray this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion that we would ask the question, are you ready to meet that judge either by death or by his return? Are you ready? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would ready our hearts. That we would be alert as to our spiritual condition. That we wouldn't just put it off another week. Lord, I pray that you would make us unresting in our sin. Help us to feel uneasy in our sin. Help us not to sleep at night in our sin until we come to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Father, it's by your grace that you've given us warnings that you've clearly pointed out to us that there is a time of judgment coming that no sin goes unnoticed by you. Even those little sins that we do, nobody knows about. Or the big sins that we do, that nobody knows about. God, you see every one of them. And Father, I thank you so much that the blood of Christ is able to cover our sin. That his sacrifice was sufficient to meet our need. And, but we are in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of your grace. We're in need of your mercy. You've created us to have a relationship with you. You didn't create us to do our own thing. And so, Father, I pray that each person here this morning, if they haven't trusted in you, I pray that they would cry out in their heart, even now, just quietly, God, show me this, Jesus. Help me to turn from my sin and turn to you. Help me to understand. Help me to put everything else aside until I can grasp that one truth, that Jesus saves. And he saves to the uttermost. I thank you that as a Christian, I don't have to worry about when I go to bed tonight, if I die, where my eternal soul will go. That I didn't have to go through my brother's funeral wondering where his eternal soul was. Because based upon the authority of the word of God and based upon his profession of faith in you and in your son, his sin is paid for, his sin is forgiven. He's in heaven with you where we all long to be. I pray that you would make that a real need, a real understanding, that you came and you paid a price for us. Help us never to forget that. Help us to be indebted to you for our salvation. So when we leave these four walls and we go out into a lost and dying world and we brush up against people who may be living in ways contrary to your word, that we wouldn't just push them away and walk the other way, but we would be drawn to them with the life-giving message of Christ that we'd be willing to share with them because we're indebted to you for our salvation. You didn't save us because of who we are. You saved us because of your love for us, because of who you are. And Father, we just pray that you would lead us now through our communion time. So we just take a moment and sing a couple songs. I pray you'd prepare our hearts. If there's anything that's not right in our hearts, Lord, I pray that we would come to you first of all, confess that to you. If there's something that needs to be made right within the body of Christ, I pray that your children would do the appropriate thing. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.